0: This podcast was named Media Moves because the media industry is constantly shifting and evolving. Few people have better foresight into those changes than my guest today, Jacob Donnelly. Jacob is the former managing director at Coindesk, the founder of a media operator, and currently the GM of B2B at Morning Brew. In this episode, Jacob talks about what tactics are underutilized in media companies, how he thinks about monetizing subscription versus advertising, and how most operators are not preparing for the changes coming in newsletters. This episode is full of actual nuggets. Let's dive in. This is Media Moves, the podcast for executives to make sense of the perpetually moving media landscape. I'm Adam Ryan. Smart companies market to the smartest people in their audience. That's why I believe in what the folks at Sailthrough are doing. Their platform is designed to build relationships with the audience who actually move the needle for your business, instead of scaling for the sake of scale. Head to salethrough.com to check out their amazing product, or via the link in our description. And now, let's get into today's episode. Jacob, thanks for coming on. Excited to have you.
1: I'm excited, Adam. Appreciate you inviting me on.
0: I think the first time we interacted... I responded to a newsletter of yours and I was like, this is so smart. And I wonder how many people you've met that way.
1: Most of my media relationships have been met that way by design. That's literally why I launched a media operator was with the hope that people would respond exactly how you did. So mission accomplished.
0: love it. For those that don't know, Jacob, I consider world-class at knowing what to do to stay ahead in media via operations. Uh, And you write about that twice a week in your amazing newsletter, Media Operator. If you're listening to this podcast, please go subscribe and pay for Jacob's information. It's worth every penny. And as the GM of B2B at Morning Brew. So you not only get to be theoretical, you get to take it to action every week.
1: When people ask how I'm able to do my day job and AMO, what I tell them is, I tend to write about things I'm thinking about during the day for my job. So it's not too separated. It's not two lives. It's really just one life where I get to do and then theorize. And it's, it helps me think about things I'm working on.
0: Tell us about your week. So like, this is pretty unique, right? For most of the operators that I've, I've interviewed, we've talked about like, Oh, you're, you're world class at growth or you're world class at content or you're world class. at something very tactical. I would argue like you might be just world class at like really just managing your time. Tell us how you do, like, in a tactical way, like, how do you think about you writing your newsletter twice a week versus running at operations, which how big is Morning Brew B2B's team now? Like 50, 60, 70 people?
1: We're going to be 50 people this year. When I started, there were five people on the team. Yeah, I mean, when it comes to managing my time, I think there's really only one thing that I'm absolutely ruthless about, and that's my Monday, which ironically is when we're recording this. I block the entire day off, and I take no meetings whatsoever, primarily because I need a day to just think about what's coming up in the fu- in, in the upcoming week. Right now, I've got four B2B newsletters or franchises that I'm thinking about. I help with the B2C side as well with some of the newsletters there. We're launching three new franchises this year. So I need that day in the beginning of the week to just ground myself and sort of just get a good understanding of all right, what has to get done this week. What are the things that I need to make sure the team is doing to move us down the field a little bit more, not to use a stupid sports metaphor. Ironically, it does it does help that I write my newsletter Monday night as well. So like in all that thinking, you know, I'm getting caught up on what the news was over the past week. I'm thinking about the week. I'm thinking about what I want to write about. I really use Monday as an opportunity to just think. From there, I mean, you know, my team like I said is fifty people. So, or will be 50 people. So I have a lot of meetings. You know, I, if I'm not meeting my direct reports, I'm meeting people in sales. I'm meeting people in growth. I'm meeting product. I'm, I have my one-on-one with my boss. Like I just, my day is full of a lot of meetings, unfortunately. How
0: much of your newsletter comes from your day-to-day where you're like, oh, fuck, I just learned, like, I just had this problem. (laughs) I should write about this.
1: The Tuesday newsletter is purely based on a reaction to the news, right? So by the time this episode comes out, Wall Street Journal did a story about AMP and how you know publishers are getting rid of AMP pages. It's the best thing publishers can do. AMP is a horrible thing. Developers hate it to just to get rid of it. That's not my day job. I don't think about AMP at all for the day job, but for the newsletter, it makes perfect sense to write about it. The Thursday piece, so the piece I write on Thursdays that goes out on Fridays, that one from time to time has to do with the day job. So over the summer, I wrote about my thesis around events coming back post COVID. Why? Well, we're going to be doing events at Morning Brew. When I was at Coindesk, I wrote about membership. Why? Because we were thinking about, did we want to move into a membership business? So from time to time, the things I write about will factor into what I write about. But I also try to think about the broader media landscape when I'm writing because obviously not every single publisher is like Morning Brew. And if I wrote just about things that I'm thinking about, that wouldn't be the greatest experience.
0: Yeah, I have that problem with Perpetual. Um, <laughs> I basically use it as my thesis test. And then it's, half the people are like, eh, I don't really find this interesting. But I'm like, you know what? It's helpful for me. There's more and more people trying to create content for all various reasons. Brand, blah, 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 thought uh, leadership stuff. I do think you have to have like in good intentions with maybe the best being like I want to, especially with when you're running a company with 50 people or even like startups with getting going. If you're actually operating on a daily basis, in my opinion, the best intention is for you to learn. Like that's why you write. But taking step one is so hard. Like for me, it was like I've wanted to write a newsletter for years and I just like never could get myself to do it. For you, like what advice do you have to someone trying to take like one step to start creating content around what they're working on?
1: Well, I think it depends on what your end goal is. When I started a media operator, my initial goal was I want to meet operators. I want to meet people in this space. I'm not a naturally outgoing person where I can like approach someone who I admire and say, Hey, you're cool, let's talk. So my hope was people would read and respond to me. So I didn't really have like a a structure in mind. But then as people started emailing me saying, this could be a business, this could be a thing, why are you not charging? I I realized I need to put structure in place, which is why I came up with the Tuesday and Friday pieces. If you're not looking to build a business, I don't believe you need that structure. And I think structure is actually what scares people away from creating content. You don't actually need a schedule. You don't need to be religious where every Tuesday and every Friday or once a week, you come out with a piece. It's just not necessary. Most important thing is, just write. It's hard to get over the blank page. It's hard to just stare at it and not know where to start. Just start. Just start writing something. That's what editing is for. You can fix it afterwards. But I think people get very daunted by the idea of, well, if I write this, I'm going to have to write every single week, like you're know, like you doing, right? You have to write every single week now because you've created a product. But for people who just want to get their thoughts out there, a irregular schedule is probably your best friend because the pressure kind of disappears.
0: Really good difference of like, essentially, once you create something that becomes a product, it like the amount of stress that it adds, like I carry every week now is like a lot worse.
1: But it will never go away. But you learn to (laughs) you learn to foster that stress in a certain way, like you almost feed off of it. Like I, I feed off that tension. I feel Monday night when I'm like, oh, crap, I need to write my piece.
0: Oh yeah. Cool. I love it. My wife hates it kind of. Cause like, I, I like, I'm like, you know, and I know your girlfriend's been a long time, uh, editor, uh, she does, I,
1: yeah.
0: and it, you know, it does take a village a little bit. That's for sure. What is something that you're, you know, uh, as I said, I think you understand trends of media and like operationally, like where you should focus. Like you did a camp, you did a, a newsletter on your, on drip campaigns that I loved because like, I thought I was the only person in the world thinking about drip campaigns. What is something right now that you're like operationally tactics for a media company that you think is like potentially being underutilized or not talked about enough that could help them?
1: I don't know if I have an easy answer for something that's underutilized. But what I will say is I've been really kind of encouraged over the past six to 12 months to see a lot of publishers leaning as hard into their own audience as they are. I mean, look, it, it, let's, let's use drip campaigns as an example. I still don't see a lot of publishers using them, right? No. Like Shocking. It's even something that Morning Brew, we don't really... Actually, that's not true. We do use them. But we're thinking about also using them from a content perspective now, not just like an onboarding you to introduce you to new things. So we do use them from that perspective. But I think it's a great opportunity to introduce users to your content. I think there are great opportunities to introduce thematic drip campaigns where users can learn about specific topics and then get introduced to your newsletters. I just think email overall, and I guess I'm talking my book right now, is a place that remains underutilized. I think that a lot of publishers still are treating it as purely an opportunity to drive users to their website rather than it being a product in and of itself. Yep. But on the other hand, many publishers are leaning so aggressively into subscriptions that they need users to go to the website because how are you going to hit the paywall if you don't go to the website? So you've got like a business model versus product disconnect where like, yes, drive to the website, that is good, but the, the newsletter in and of itself is a great product and they, I think, are, are over-prioritizing the click still.
0: I'll never forget the first time I told someone about the hustle and I took out uh, a ad partner of mine who's spent six was on pace to spend about six and a half million dollars uh, with me the year before at a different media company and they definitely i had great trust with them they bought all sorts of shit from us uh, at spiceworks and like i i thought i could convince them of anything and when i told them that we were a newsletter only <laughs> publisher she was like well i guess like you know we spent like a few hundred thousand dollars with you in newsletters at spiceworks i guess we can like maybe do the same but she was like adam like how do you how do you convince me one day to spend like a hundred thousand a day, which they could do through banner ads and takeovers at Spiceworks. How do you how do you convince someone a hundred thousand dollars a day for a newsletter? And I, at the time, I remember losing, like, leaving that meeting, and being like, "God, I just didn't have the right words for it." And six years later, after lots of pitches, I think the difference is like, I no longer call it newsletter; I call it attention email versus driving attention out of email. And like there like it, newsletters is just a name that like gets people confused. It's like using the term language. Like, what is it? Yeah, there's a, definitely a an underlying still misunderstanding of like oh well i have a newsletter but it's like you have 28 links that you just link out to that's not a newsletter in our world
1: yeah i think that's the big issue is people are so focused on still so focused on the website that they lose sight of of other products that could exist and but look i'll be honest our daily newsletter we are getting advertisers to spend that amount of money every single day like, i know how to is... do that
0: i know i know why What brought up that number? <laughs>
1: Yes, it is spending that amount of money is uh, it's a lot, but advertisers are willing to do it as long as the audience is engaged.
0: That's a shift. I just don't think people realize that email could have that much attention, but like the key is dr- keeping them in in the, that tension in email, right? And then like the only attention driving outside of that email is either for your own products uh, to share it with friends or to engage with an advertiser. And like that's the strategy.
1: Now, that strategy has to evolve unfortunately. I mean, I see this in your in your in your newsletter. So you talk about your open rates and your unique open rates. The issue is, is I don't know if you're taking into consideration iOS 15 and Apple's tracking in there. Which means if you aren't, whatever open rate you're advertising is actually 10 percent less in actuality. So that's the inflation that we're starting to see because the way that that works is basically Apple is opening the email in the background, even if you don't open it in the front end, right? So yeah. that makes it very hard to churn subscribers now agreed right because if everyone is opening it whether they're actually opening it or not you don't know if they are active or inactive but the esp's and or sorry the internet service providers the ones who will actually ding you for spam do know if it's being opened or not which means they expect you to churn still even though you don't have the data to churn which means how do you get engagement clicks so suddenly you've now got to figure out how to build a great product in the newsletter That gets users that that users want to go from top to bottom and engage the entire thing. And then also get them clicking. Because if they don't click, you have no idea if they're engaged, at least for those Apple subscribers.
0: Totally. Like the shifting, you know, we came up with an automatic churn. In 2019, pretty ahead of its time, I think, of where like every day you churn certain people based on category, you know, what channel did they come from? If it was a shitty channel, you only give them seven days or 14 days. If it's a great channel, give them 100 days. We all kind of those have built email machines understand that. The way with clicks, you know, Morning Brew does this where if you don't engage uh, with an email or they don't know it, it'll actually be personalized in there and say, "Hey, you haven't opened to this. Click this." And it's an email. It's not a dedicated email. It's not anything different. It's in the actual newsletter, asking you to click it. Really good, a good takeaway here if you're building out newsletters is like that personalization in newsletter is actually like, it allows you to actually avoid sending a dedicated email, which then actually gets more unsubs. So it like saves you money over time.
1: It does, but you've got to be pretty aggressive with that. Like
0: mm-hmm.
1: we've tried it where we can just kind of put it in line and it kind of matches the text. It gets buried. It gets lost. You've got to kind of be in the user's face.
0: You guys have a gray box around it.
1: Uh, we're testing to make it better. Uh, because you've got to be in people's faces like i to some extent i would i would almost argue that we just need to put a big red banner up top that says hey if you don't click something in the next 30 days you're going to be unsubscribed just so users click
0: so if you want someone that does this really well in my opinion it's the information with their actual paid subscription so go look at how they've done that and you basically get alerts in email of like really big personalized red notices of like doing it and it's it's a great way to be like, uh oh, I'm not gonna get this anymore. That could be a whole different topic. And for what it's worth with my newsletter, I actually put that in there not to to brag, but I like hold myself accountable. I think one of the mistakes that I've started to see with people creating newsletters is like there is a difference of quality, you know, mm-hmm. like you, my hallmark piece that we'll potentially talk about later was definitely the most well-received email I've ever done. And my unique open rate showed that. Yep. So like holding myself accountable there and, and Web Smith was the first person that ever did that, that I saw. And I was like, I really appreciate that. Like transparency. Cause even when it's bad, you're like, maybe I kind of phoned it in. So that's, but there is a, there's a whole nother can of worms with sharing information like that that I've noticed.
1: I don't think there's anything wrong with sharing the information. I mean, we all have that one piece. I think that we hold up as like our. We should strive to that. What's yours? Why I left Substack.
0: Oh, that, I mean, <laughs> that was that was like um, I know that piece. I could like almost recite that piece.
1: I mean, that piece has probably driven more traffic and more paid subscribers to AMO than any other piece I've written. Coupled with the amount of relationships I've built off of that, of. Current Substack uh, like newsletter writers so who are like, yeah, I think I want to do the same thing. What do I do? And that piece definitely uh, solidified some things for me in the creator space. Yeah, that piece was excellent.
0: I, it actually inspired a tweet thread that I've talked about. That tweet thread around Substack that I made has like changed my life because I've had mm-hmm. so many people reach out to me. And you were the inspiration for that tweet thread. Appreciate it. What else are you consuming right now? Like you, Jacob, a media operator, a leader. What's helping you keep at the forefront?
1: So my consumption habits are a little different, I think, than other people, perhaps, maybe not. I read a lot of media information. I always do that. Obviously, I read our newsletters and see what's going on there. Outside of my work, most of my consumption is actually not related to media at all. I spend a lot of time just reading books. Yesterday morning, I finished a book about this guy, Alan Dulles, who was the longest tenured director of the CIA. Pure evil in a human body. Like just an absolute horrible human being. Like rationalized, working with Nazis, just like really, really screwed up person. I've read books about the history of different countries. Like I, I've i read business books. Like I read, I try to read a variety of things. My belief is once you get to a certain level in your career, knowledge becomes less about tactical accumulation and more about just big picture accumulation. And you don't really know where you're going to get information from that could be helpful in the future. And so I try to read wide rather than going deep on very narrow things, though I do find myself going down rabbit holes about a variety of things.
0: Wow. That's such a good takeaway. There gets to a point where like actually like broadening your
1: perspective
0: is actually what allows you to be better at what you do.
1: Some of the most famous leaders in the world read wide things, they, consumed every I mean look one of the, mo- the one of the best leaders in the world in my opinion was Winston Churchill. he was a screwed up dude by many in many respects but he, yeah. he led Britain through World War II but had he just he was voracious when it came to information. he would hold these dinners where he would invite scientists and political thinkers and business people and like writers all to talk about random topics. He was an advocate for air warfare decades before it became big. He was the creator of the tank. He actually came up with the idea for the tank. All these things, like you wouldn't think an aristocratic, cigar-smoking, basically consistently alcoholed individual would be that, but nope, he was voracious. And it gave him perspective on things that a lot of other politicians didn't have. And I think it's important for people to be as hungry for information.
0: What's like one thing, a a book that you've read or something that you've read that like was historically context that you think like has even just inspired, not like necessarily like hard takeaways, but just inspired your line of thinking today?
1: I love just reading about old families that have built businesses. Some of my favorite books have been from Ron Chernow, and I haven't read any of his president books. You know, he wrote about Washington and Grant. He wrote about Hamilton, obviously, but he wrote a book about House of Morgan which is about J.P. Morgan. Yep. He wrote about the Rockefellers and really just about you know John D. Rockefeller. There's something really fascinating about that era and capitalism. And obviously, I think you know as a society we're better off without robber barons. But there's something that's just so fascinating about it, and that real hunger to accomplish something. Like they just they were shameless about that, and it's just it's interesting.
0: One of the big marketing trends I'm paying attention to is the disappearance of third-party data. Owning your audience is so important for marketers today, which is why I love Sailthrough. Their marketing automation platform digests a frankly astonishing amount of first-party data so executives can properly understand their audience in less time. Head to salethrough.com that's S-A-I-L-T-H-R-U.com to check them out or visit the link in our description. In media, you have this like fortunate pleasure of almost anyone I talk to. You don't just have like great operators that you get to deal with on a daily basis. You get to work for Austin Reef, who I we all admire as like an amazing operator. Uh, Jason Schulweiss, mm-hmm. maybe the most talented revenue person in the country. You get to uh, your head of education, your GM of education. She's absolutely incredible. You get to work with all these great operators internally at in Morning Brew, but then on the flip side for your job, your side job, you mm-hmm. get to talk to all these other media operators. Who do you admire right now in the space of how they're actually operating? Who are you looking up to right now?
1: I mean, I have been a longtime admirer of Sean over at Industry Dive. They did a really good job of making B2B interesting, but so did John at Aging Media and Rafit at Skift. And all these operators who, like, my first job out of college was working at this company called ThomasNet, which was literally people who know B2B. It was these big green books that you could go and find a, a manufacturer for a ball bearing. The most boring work out there. It was the literally most boring field of B2B out there. I did not think that B2B could ever be interesting. But those guys made it look interesting, right? It takes these complicated topics and it presents it in a way that people are interested in it. And it helps people to make better decisions in their jobs. I'm inspired by all that stuff, you know, and I learn from those guys constantly. There's so many operators out there, way better operators than I am, who just, they know what they're doing and they just, they, they, they are not distracted by shiny things. They are focused on what they want to do. I love what those guys, every one of them are doing.
0: Yeah. I think those are three great ones. What I like respect about them so much is that B2B is kind of going through this, like a little Renaissance period. Mm -hmm. I I think where uh, a lot of people are realizing the the power of it and a lot of, a lot of good uh, talking heads like yourself have been able to, to shout that from the rooftops and people are starting to listen and catch on. Those three have been doing it way before that. Oh yeah. Uh, So when you think about where you're going with morning brew and your scale, you talked. You're adding three new this week, or uh, three new this year. You're adding more and more. What's your strategy when choosing categories? Um, we've talked about this a little bit, and about your IT vertical. Uh, and I had uh-huh. a good laugh from it. But if you're a media operator, like exploring, like, hey, I think I could like, I cover healthcare. I'm Becker's. I'm thinking about going to a new space. Like, how do you think about that? Like, I think you've done a great job of expanding. Like, what's your thought process?
1: There are some pre-questions you have to ask yourself before you start going down the path of deciding on a new area of focus. And I think the first thing you have to ask yourself is business model, right? So Morning Brew is an advertising-driven business. The majority of our revenue comes from our ads. So any franchise that I decide I want to launch or any new vertical I want to move into has to support an ad model. With that in mind, there are basically three things I'm looking for. The first is, is there an interesting story to tell? If nothing is happening in the world of that specific area, probably not going to want to launch a franchise around it. There's got to be things to write about. Otherwise, I'm going to hire an editor and journalist, and they're not going to have anything to say. And with IT, right, that existed obviously with things like ransomware and cybersecurity and the move to work from home and how do you all that stuff. You know, HR, we launched HR brew, we launched in October. Ton of disruption going on in the HR space. So that's obviously the very first thing. The second thing is, I want to pick verticals where the audience is actually seeing growth. I always joke, I'll never launch a publication about horse and buggies because the audience isn't growing, you know, That's and there's no story to tell, but like the audience just isn't growing, right? There's not more people every year going, I'm going to go work in the horse and buggy industry. It's just not happening. But IT is growing. HR is growing. Corporate finance world is growing. So that makes it a good opportunity. And then the, and then the third really is, is there sponsored demand? Yeah. And that can be some, somewhat tricky to determine. Simplest way to determine if there is or isn't is just look and see if there are trade shows out there covering what you are covering. If there are, those are potential advertisers. I also have no issue being late.
0: Yeah, we've talked about this with cannabis, right?
1: So that's exactly what I was going to say. So our my executive editor, this guy Josh, had literally on his interview pitched cannabis brew. Said, "I think we should launch cannabis brew." And I said, don't want to launch it right now. He goes, why? And I said, because it's not federally regulated. He goes, so what? I go, if it's not federally regulated, it's going to be very hard to get advertisers at a national level. We're going to have You're to right. deal with local advertising. He goes, right, but others are already launching. And I said, and that's fine. When it's federally regulated, Morning Brew will launch one and we'll be very quick to get to the front because we have scale right now where I know I've got, I've got cannabis entrepreneurs in my audience. And so I can, once I launch something, I'll be able to capture them quickly. But being yeah. early to something, you know, the internet's so big, it can support multiple publications. You can see this in the crypto space, which I spent a lot of time in. There are a ton of publications there. And there are some that launched recently and some that launched six, seven, eight years ago. You can be late. It's still fine.
0: Well, in the you know, the flywheel of morning, bird. not everybody can th- have the confidence to say sure. we can be late and get to the front. Right. That's the advantage there. What is success? You know, you talked about advertiser demand, really like fair point. I love your three pieces. If uh, so, uh, essentially there's gotta be buzz. It's gotta be growing and there's gotta be ad dollars to support mm-hmm. the business. What's, what's like uh, and I can tell you with Workweek about our numbers too, of like, I always look for a creator. Once they get to 10,000 newsletter subscribers for our model, It's good. Uh, We're Mm -hmm. like in a really great place. What's like a number, you know, I think at last I saw HR Brews at like 70,000 or something already, which is just baffling to think about. (laughs) Um, What is like kind of a a goal that you aim for, for like subscribers?
1: For the next probably four or five newsletters we launch, we'll be able to grow them to six figure subscribers. HR, there are hundreds of thousands of HR professionals out there. There are hundreds of thousands of IT professionals out there. There are hundreds of thousands of people who work in corporate finance at a certain level. So I think we'll be able to grow to six figure subscribers for each of these new franchises. That's awesome. I think where it becomes interesting is when we do clear out these, these number of franchises, do we want to go down a level and are there any other smaller industries that we think are really worth targeting? I think to figure that out, obviously they might not have a hundred thousand plus subscribers, but the ad model might be different, right? right? Maybe we charge a lot more for advertising because again- you Yeah, like right. that's, that's one where if, there might not be a ton of senior level people, but the senior level people that you do have are willing to pay a lot of money. Now on the inverse, I do think that when you go that niche, that's when it actually does make sense to start looking at subscriptions. Because when you're able to focus that much, the quality of content I think can increase. Because you're so focused and that's worth paying for it's harder i think when when you're doing a broad industry coverage to then try to charge without having to bring on a ton more people
0: love that so helpful everyone listening you just got uh probably the fastest growing b2b media company in the planet is just a uh, inside of uh morning brew and no one knows about it uh and you just got inside of how, how they think about it uh the next segment of media moves is when we cover predictions Mm -hmm. So what do you think the B2B industry in 12 months will look like?
1: It's going to be a boring answer, but it's going to look a lot of the same.
0: I think it's a fair answer, the right answer,
1: probably. I think it is. I think we're going to continue seeing more B2B media companies hopefully get covered. let more people know this is a, a world that is interesting to work in hopefully let journalists know this is a world where they can actually build a career and not get fired and not have to chase page views and not have to chase aggressive quotas. That will just be a continuous education process. And again, that's, you know, part of my job. That's part of, I think, every senior level B2B operator's job is just let the world know that this is a thing. But 12 months from now, You'll still see advertising. You'll still see subscriptions. You'll still you'll, events will be back. I think at a huge swing at that point, you yeah. know, um, unless Agreed. you know we get some other variant of COVID. Like events are here, we're ready to go. People want to meet; they want to be in person. So, but other than that, twelve months, not too much difference.
0: We should collab on a, an event, by the way. We should do something together.
1: Maybe we should.
0: Uh, uh, I think we both have uh, both have the audience and the team to potentially overlap. What do you think will be totally different? about the industry in the next five years. And then I'm going to follow up just so you can think about it. It will be the exact same.
1: I don't know if it will or will not be different in five years, but what I am looking at in the B2B space, and I wrote about this once. So Webb Smith has this, you know, he's written a lot about linear commerce and I find that to be a really fascinating area of consumer media, but I do think there's also an opportunity for something like that in B2B media but instead of it being like products, I think it's data. And you can see this with Craig over at Freight Waves, what he's built out.
0: Amazing business. They're coming on the pod.
1: I mean, I'm relaunching my podcast as well. And I think we're going to have him back on the pod because he bought Flying Mag, which is just like the dude's just absolutely crushing it. But I really am interested about this whole circle of... you. you it's really almost like he's got a three-legged stool, right? He's got his media business which is he monetizes primarily through advertising. He's got an events business, which brings together all the people that are in his industry, right? Which is great for him. It's great for his audience. Obviously it went away during COVID. I'm sure it'll be back. He supported that with video when it was gone. And he's got his like high priced SaaS data business. The Wonderful thing is, is you can use the data to inform content you're writing. The data can also be part of your events if you want to, but The best part about that is he can advertise his subscription business, his high-priced subscription business on his media site that he's monetizing with ads. And therefore, his marketing for his subscription business is almost free. And he actually calls this, you know, he he loves to talk about his negative CACs, where he actually earns money promoting his subscription business. I think a lot more B2B media companies should be thinking about, or I hope they will be over the next five years think about what sort of tools can they build for their audience that's outside of just like charging for content. Charging for content's fine, you know, and I have no issue with that. Obviously, I do it myself. But if you can become part of someone's job in some way, the way I think that his data does, suddenly you have a much different relationship with the audience that makes you far stickier. Now, where I think a lot of media companies will struggle with this is that you've got to have the right team to build that, and I've written a lot about this, but it takes a certain DNA to launch that type of a business. And it's hard and it takes a long time to break even. It's not a, you know, you start working on this thing and you start, you start cash flowing in, in three months. It could take you two years to build this. That's where it gets complicated. But I think that there's real opportunity in that high priced data, blending that with the content and the reporting that is, I think, very compelling. I haven't seen a ton of publishers do a great job with it, but I have been paying attention to what Craig is doing.
0: Yeah, the the flywheel that they have created and no one talks and knows uh, about it, it's honestly a huge inspiration for Workweek. Uh, it's like what I look at and talk about all the time. I like love what they're doing. And like when I was at Spiceworks, we had so much data. I mean, billions of rows of data on these end users of IT professionals, and they never monetized the data. They just used it for ads. And it was like, yeah. God dang. Uh, And look, you know, they're being rewarded by the market. Like they, the last valuation was phenomenal for a media company. You know, they're actually being rewarded because they're creating products that match that. And I talk about that in my newsletter all the time about that's the issue. And so uh, I love that. What do you think will be the exact same in five years? Like nothing, same thing like that exists today. No, no evolution.
1: Well, I still think we'll have a lot of really crappy B two B publications that pay lip service to their industry rather than actually covering it. I think it takes a long time for a media brand to die, so I expect more of the same there. But I, you know, I think there will be new people who start up and and, and compete with them. But I think B two B media has one very simple responsibility, and that is to help people make better decisions at their jobs. That's the job. That is what the responsibility is, and so. If they're not doing that in five years and they've made a big mistake. Right. Uh, So that will be the same thing five years from now. But that's what media is, man. You got to show up every single day and do the same thing. There's no compounding effects from your stories. You publish a story and then the next day you're sitting there with a blank page again. And sure, you can build off previous reporting and all that stuff. But at the end of the day, you got to ship product every single day. So that'll always be the case. Five years, 10 years, 50 years. That's media.
0: The consistency is is the biggest barrier. And I think the takeaway of making sure that you always are helping people do better at job. And I think that for a different conversation, different day, I think we could spend 30 minutes of what that means. because mm-hmm. uh, there's a lot of people, you know, what is that investigative journalist of calling out like what it is and what's going on? Is that is that essay is about like tactics? Is you know, uh, there's a lot of different models to get there. And I think that's like where the opportunity also where like the evolution will come. All right. Uh, last segment of the podcast. Uh, we normally, I ask about my newsletter perpetual, uh, any, any feedback or thoughts, um, when we were talking ahead of time, you brought up the hallmark newsletter. They've created an unbelievable full stack talk about flywheel, mm-hmm. but they're doing it through very boring slash predictable movies. But, uh, what, what's your reaction to, to the hallmark piece?
1: Years ago, I, I, got really caught up in the Amazon – it was called KDP, which was like your, the self-publishing plot system they had. Because I you know, wanted to write novels and I wanted to build a career as a, a novelist. But I didn't want to give up the rights to my IP. So I thought, oh, I'll self-publish. And so I did a bunch of research on that. And one of the things I learned was the absolute best categories to write in are romance and science fiction. Yep. Romance most of all but there were very specific rules about romance. Like there had to be a happily ever after. The characters could never be with anybody else. They could have an entire 15 book arc where they're like never quite matching up, but they can never be with anybody else. There were specific rules. And that's because readers wanted to open one of those books and they wanted to know how it ended before they even started, which is weird but they just they it was it was dependable they could depend on getting something out of it and that's what hallmark provides right like they they you know how it's going to end it's a joke you can literally like there's this yeah. funny guy on tiktok who will do these um oh, i don't know who i forget what it is but he'll he'll you know basically got mad Lives for coming up with an action movie and it's the thing with the hallmark movie it's it's mad Lives, right it's famous pr person decides she has to go save the family christmas tree farm and falls in love with the bearded lumberjack who has a very depressing background but has a beautiful five-year-old daughter and like boom there's a story and you know how it's going to end yeah it's dependable now how that relates to selling hallmark cards i mean hallmark is a big thing with regard to valentine's day and love and romance and all that but it's not the first company to do it right like the literally the idea of soap operas i think came from procter and gamble because they, they did. Have, they there's, needed. They needed to sell. I wrote about so. that once.
0: <laughs> yeah, I wrote about that in like 2015 when Under Armour. When I was doing the Under Armour, and I was like, "This is there's precedent here." Uh, P and G. Ton of precedent. Of ton of precedent. Yeah. And I do think what's interesting is that they they're acting like as much of a you know a lot of product companies actually don't take a content strategy. They just say if you build it, it'll come. Where Hallmark is very specifically saying, "We know psychologically." people feel comfort in this predictability we get people talking about the holidays like christmas and saint Val- valentine's day through our our content inevitably they can buy a card to share that and it's uh it's a really brilliant and it's profitable like this is the other thing and like this is another conversation god i could talk to you for a long time but like <laughs> all these media companies having their ad company ad teams cut right yeah um pretty quickly uh it's a dumb move it's what made Hallmark so successful it's like not only did they build up this massive moat of content but they are they're profiting hundreds of millions of dollars a year
1: on that content
0: to feed it back
1: they are profiting on content that they created to make people want to buy more cards it's Amazing. literally the negative it's a negative tax i just talked about with craig's business yeah like they are profiting on the content they created to sell cards that is the best business in the world
0: i know uh um, awesome uh well thank you so much jacob for coming on we got to do it again we should do it more often we should do like a, a live twitter spacer or sometime because i could just i could just jam with you forever but uh thank you for being an inspiration for the newsletter i have read every single one top to bottom if you're not Appreciate paying it. for it you should i at one point had my email address attached to my old work email address and just <laughs> bought two i think i still pay for two and it's worth it but Appreciate uh that. of course and uh yeah i would love to have you back and and thanks for coming on media moves
1: Thank you for having
0: me, Adam. Thanks for tuning in. If you'd like to stay ahead of media's next move, then make sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you listen. I'll see you next time.